Hello, my friends. Today we are talking to Gerald Kane, the author of The Technology Fallacy, and we discuss the biggest misconceptions about digital transformation, using the scientific method to drive innovation, and how to identify opportunities in a rapidly changing environment. All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO Podcast. Here we go. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. Jerry. Hey, how are you doing? Fantastic. Look at that Zoom background. Where is that? Yeah, man. That is actually Boston College. Um, it is actually pretty close to the actual view out my office window. So uh, it feels like I'm at work. So you guys still aren't back yet then? Nope. Well, I do believe, um, you know, it's summer. So even oh. if we were back, we wouldn't be back. And I think some people are allowed on campus, but I'm just staying away. Yeah, schools, it's like very localized how they're reopening and what they're doing. Some of the uh, K through 12 schools here are talking about like two days a week or it's mm -hmm. just seems like it, it hasn't solidified across the nation. Is, is uh, your college released any information about that? Yeah, they're, we're coming back in the fall. They're doing, you know, we get updates about every week on what's happening you know, a lot of classes are going to be at about half size um, in-person classes. Some of the large lecture classes are going to go online, but students will be coming back on campus. They've actually, I think, leased a hotel for the foreseeable future um, to make sure we can have more dorm space. Um, so they're, they're taking a lot of precautions and they're doing they're doing as good of a job as anybody can do. Um, and, you know, here in Massachusetts, we've been pretty fortunate that um, the government has handled things fairly well. Um, and we were one of the big surges, but now we're sort of managing. So we'll see. Where's home free? Where are you? I'm down in Florida. Okay. Yep. And things are going up and down, you know, back and the forth. Things are what? They're up yeah. and down, back and forth. So we'll see how, how things progress. But, uh, I don't know. I'm excited. I get to talk to great people like you every day. Yep. And so like for me, this is, uh, you know, it's, it's pretty exciting, like to be able to connect through technology and yep. it's just, it's, it's amazing because we're bouncing like light through fiber around the globe. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've been teaching this stuff for 20 years now and I still geek out on all that. <sighs> What are your primary subjects that you teach? So it, I'm in the business school and it's information systems. So how technology is changing business. All right. So I love your book. That's why, that's how okay, I found great. you. I found Excellent. you because I was like, I need new books to read. I can I searched by like the best rated books on Amazon for categories I was interested in. And then I read your book and I was like, this is good. I know you wrote it with a group of people too, right? Yep. Um, the, my three co-authors are all Deloitte consultants. So okay. it was, it was a five-year initiative that we did and, you know, sponsored by Deloitte and MIT Sloan management review. Um, and it was, uh, it was, it was a lot of fun. We're actually working on book number two. What's been fascinating to me is how many of the insights from the technology fallacy are actually applicable to the COVID situation. Uh, and that's sort of what we're investigating in the book um, is why does this stuff work so well in responding to COVID? And, and the sort of the thesis we're working on is they're both disruption. 
So digital disruption, which is what we dealt with in the technology fallacy, um, is what we call chronic disruption, just like a chronic health condition. It happens over time. Um, it's a little slower to recognize. And uh, we're calling COVID acute disruption, you know, comes in, hits fast, hits hard, uh, organizations that is, and people, um, but mostly organizations. And, um, and so, you know, many of the same things, many of the lessons still apply. And so we're, we're digging into why that is and which ones do apply and which ones don't. So it's been, I've had about a dozen interviews over the last month or so with executives, many of whom were featured in the technology fallacy, sort of follow up with them. And it's been just really interesting to hear companies' journeys as they've tried to react and respond. How did the book project come up with at the beginning? Uh, the original, the first one? Yeah. So I was recruited by Sloan Management Review to be the academic lead for this research initiative that Deloitte was sponsoring. And after five years of doing that, and we released a report every year, they're freely available on the SMR website. Most of it's also in the book. And we just realized at the end of that five years that there was a, a larger story that wasn't getting told in the individual reports. Uh, and so we decided to go ahead and write a book out of it. Um, and it was, you know, it was a really a far more enjoyable experience than I thought it was going to be. Um, and I learned a ton. Do your students like geek out about the books too? Do they read it? Is that part of their class? Um, I have not, you know, I feel a little sheepish assigning my own stuff nah. um, to them, but yeah, it's, it, I shouldn't, but it's, you know, it, then I can't tell them. So I just tell them all the stories and they pretend like, like they just happened to me. Um, <laughs> and so it's, it's, I, I find it more fun to just sort of like drop the stories in class and have them not know where I got them from. Um, the course I teach is actually pretty interesting. It's called, and it's even getting more interesting now. It's called Tech Trek. So I teach them for about six weeks of classroom time. And then we take them, historically have taken them either to San Francisco or New York and visited tech companies um, or the tech side of large legacy companies and how they're trying to adapt. And that's fascinating because I get to, you know, we in, in San Francisco, we get about 25 to 30 companies in a week. Um, and in New York, it's about 20 to 25 over three days. And we get to talk, we were talking Facebook, Google, Amazon, and then like Warby Parker, Madison Reed, Fanatics, um, the sportswear company, and just hearing these leaders talk is really fascinating. And then, you know, and obviously we're having to pivot in the COVID time. And so we're figuring out how to offer it virtually. And I think that actually has the potential to be even better because we're limited to the number of students we can bring when we travel. But when we go virtual, we can bring these amazing executives in to talk about what they, what they know, and we can cram a bunch of students in there. So do your students typically already have business experience or are they like bright eyed and bushy tailed, like haven't worked in? Yep. Most of them are all undergrads. Um, and in fact, we typically, so it is a competitively admitted class since there's a limited number of students that can uh, be added. And we typically favor sophomores and juniors as opposed to seniors. And the reason for doing that is we really say, look, this is intended to be a life-changing experience, um, or at least an education-changing experience. And you know, if you're a senior, you already have a job, you already have a plan, you already have a major, it can't have that impact. Whereas if we get them as a sophomore, 
and we could open their eyes to sort of the possibility of tech and entrepreneurship and digital business. And it really has the chance to change their trajectory um, of what they study. Uh, and that's what we try to do. What sort of, I'm really interested because you get to talk to a lot of people. And mm -hmm. I like that because once I got to that point in my life where I started talking to a lot of people, you just get these amazing, it's like we're little AI algorithms. We pick up on these patterns yes. and we see things. And so I was, I was curious to know, you know, all these different companies you get to talk to, you're, they're talking about, you know, uh, digital transformation, technology, people, mm -hmm. process, all of this stuff. But what are some of like the biggest misinterpretations that you see as a trend? Do you see any? Well, of course. I mean, so that that's the whole point of the technology fallacy, right? You know, the, the title, which interestingly enough, we came up with it last after we had written the book. So we never actually explained what it means in the book. And so the technology fallacy is this mistaken belief that just because your business challenges are caused by digital technology, that the solution necessarily involves digital technology. And in fact, what we find and we illustrate in the book is that many of the more effective solutions are actually people oriented. And still, when you, when I was having on podcasts like this and having conversations with people, you know, we'll talk about the importance of culture and mindset and employee skill sets and managers and they, you know, leadership traits and organizational traits. Uh, and they still want to go back to, okay, well, what about a cloud strategy? And it's just like, <laughs> no, that's not what we're talking about here. It's, it's how do you, how do you get to respond? You know, how do you get your organization in a place where you can respond regardless of the technology? Now, cloud is important and we're finding that in COVID. But you don't start the conversation there. You start the conversation with how do we change the organization? Yeah, I mean, th that brings me to my next thought I had when I was consuming all of your content is uh, this concept of like all about the people and just general cliches, like how they work in life. And what I mm -hmm. and so I've been thinking deeply about them and trying to wrap my mind around it. And the best thing I've got so far is like they become cliches because they're true, but then it's, yeah. it's boring. And, and then you say <laughs> it so much, it becomes meaningless. And it's just the things your parents said. And I almost feel like it's this, this infinite loop we go through as a species where the next generation, there's got to be some use for it. Like, and the best use I've come up with is by discovering those, you know, lessons on their own, they, they discover them and they become theirs with their new words. Yeah. And that's the best thing I can come up with. Well, <laughs> one of my colleagues, um, I'm actually a, I still am a, a Methodist minister in my previous career before I became a college professor. Um, but now my appointment is as a college professor. But um, one of my colleagues used to say, it's like going to church. You don't, one of my business school colleagues, it's like going to church. You really don't learn anything new when you go, but you reinforce, you know, you're reminded of the things that are important. And you know, as I've given this talk now, you know, literally around the world, I've talked to some really interesting groups of people. Uh, the one question that comes up a lot is, how is this new? Um, and my response is, well, in some senses, it's not. I'm just shocked at how much people forget in the face of a shiny new object, you know, what's really important. And you can, ooh, we need to be cloud. We need to be AI. We need to be blockchain. We need to, you know, whatever the, the latest gizmo and gadget is, and we and we forget the blocking and tackling sometimes that it you know the technology doesn't matter as much as getting your employees on board, changing their mindset, realizing what's possible, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and now what we've seen with COVID is 
lots of companies, it's been a like a wake up call for a lot of companies. And we've seen like years worth of digital transformation take place in the matter of a couple of months, because frankly, they haven't had any choice. And, you know, the real question is going to be what changes forever and what goes back to the old way um, when all this is said and done, whenever that is. Yeah, last night I was checking out the uh, Delta and JetBlue stock, right? Okay. <laughs> because they are so far under their like five year yep. where it's been. And a lot of the other stocks that I had in my portfolio, like they came back, right? And yeah. they're growing, but the uh, those still haven't come back much at all. They're still pretty, you know, far under their fair value. And so I was just looking at that, like, you know, I just... I mean, I feel like it's the the mail all over again. People think that the you know the U.S. Postal Service they think that the internet's going to crush it, but in fact, it right. amplifies it. And I just have this feeling that like I don't think this. I think this is going to give people if it pushes them all at home, then they're just probably going to take more travel time and be more movement oriented, for lack of a better term, because they have yeah. that freedom and space, and they don't want to be you know more migratory, right? Uh, and that would actually increase travel. Yeah. Oh, I think the, the question, I'm, I am by no means a stock analyst, so take it <laughs> all with a grain of salt. Um, you know, I think what the, the question is going to be when. Mm. You know, I, I have no doubt that travel will come back. Uh, will it be different? That's a good question. But how long is it going to take? You know, if we have a vaccine early 2021, then I think it could come back sooner. If we never get a vaccine, it could be a long time before that normal that normal travel comes back and and nobody knows. And then the question is, can the airline survive long enough, you know, to get to that place or, you know, what's going to happen? And so those are just open questions that I don't think anybody really knows the answer to. Yeah, I, I agree. I'm definitely not a stock analyst, but <laughs> I just have my portfolio and I do the best I and can. And I prefer not to look at my portfolio. Thank you very much. <laughs> just... <laughs> I just keep eyes closed and trust my financial advisor. So um, I let him do all the the painful looking. So I actually have a, um, uh, a recommendation for you for someone that I think you would really, really like as far as their thoughts on, on leadership and mindset. Uh, his name okay. is Joe Campbell. He's the CTO over at T-Systems. T-Systems okay. is like a huge conglomerate, but one of the brands that most people know is T-Mobile. Um, okay, yeah. Yeah. So just the way that he talks about digital transformation and he takes the things that are truths, you know, core truths mm -hmm. that are, but he says them in unique ways. And he's just, uh, you know, every once in a while you get one of those individuals that's like, oh, that person's on point. And uh, for some reason, I was, I was looking at your notes today and reading about you. And I was like, you know what? I should tell him about Joe Campbell's episode because that would be an interesting connection to make. Yeah. And if you could make an introduction, that'd be yeah. great. We actually interviewed somebody from T-Mobile way back in the day um, in, in our book research, probably like year one or two. Um, and so they were doing some really interesting stuff. And I'd be love to catch up and see what they're doing now and how they're responding to the current environment. Do you get to do any consulting? Like, do you ever get to work with a company through a completed project? Yes and no. So, <clears throat> you know, let's face it, my Deloitte colleagues, the reason they funded the book is to sell consulting, you know, and big projects are hard. You know, I'm just a one man shop. So I, but I do work with companies first as speaking engagement. So, and I've done, what's interesting is I had a bunch of stuff set up in, 
you know, for March, April, May of this year, and even into June, all of it got canceled. Uh, but I would say 80% of it pivoted to some form of online session. And I actually, like early June, I did a session for a company in Latin America, a company in India, and a company in the US, not where I live, over the course of three days. And I physically wouldn't have been able to do all that. And I could be at home with my family for dinner. And so that would have been like physically impossible before. So I do, speaking is my number one thing. I have also worked with small teams, um, sort of helping them do some planning as well as with leadership uh, of organizations, sort of ongoing continuing education. Because I think one, one of the things that our book showed, so one of the fascinating findings was when we asked respondents, does your organization need new or better leadership uh, to compete in a digital world? And we ranked companies on this maturity scale. Um, and even 50 per, over 50% of the most mature companies still said they needed more or better leadership. Um, and what the difference was, was those maturing companies were doing something about it. So I, I do a lot of continuing education with executives so that they can have a digital literacy about and sort of approach the digital world with some sort of working knowledge. I often say it's easier for me to teach an executive the tech knowledge they need than it is to teach the tech or the tech employees or tech leaders the business knowledge and the, the leadership <laughs> knowledge they need. So that's tough. So I do a lot of that um, because they do need the, to get their skill set updated. And if they rely only on consultants, you know, the consultants are always trying to sell them something. So I'm often sort of like on the company side when dealing with consultants. Um, in fact, one large retailer had brought me in to sort of help negotiate between the the company and the the consulting firm to figure out what the best product projects were to sort of be a trusted advisor. That's a long answer, long way to say yes, but not a lot of like hands-on projects. So you get you really enjoy like the way you get to spend your time? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's I have the best job in the world. You know, college professor. A lot of people don't really know what the job's about. It's like 15 years of slog um, as you're trying to publish a parish and get all your credentials. And then once you have tenure, um, you know, there's this like image of college professors as okay, once you get tenure, you're going to go work on your golf game or you're going to check out. But nobody that, nobody's a strong word. Most of the people that can, aren't going to survive the 15 year slog to get there. If all they want to do is check out most of most of my colleagues are actually quite passionate about the areas they're interested in and once we're up and running and once you have that tenure it's like i'm free to go investigate and understand and research things that i find interesting and bring them back to my students and what a great gift and my wife actually asked me you know when do i plan to retire um and i said why would i retire my job is what people retire to do and so it's just, I, it's an amazing experience and I'm really grateful for it. Uh, and I really see it as a gift that I've, that I've worked hard for. Let's face it. I worked hard for, uh, but now that I have, and I really want to make, take good use of it. Um, and really it's, I feel like I have a responsibility to make good use of it. And I love writing the books and talking to executives because, you know, I can get myself in a big data set or in a lab and sort of do hardcore academic stuff, which is important as well. But I really enjoy working with executives that like 
how can we move the organization forward into this brave new world of digital? And how can we convince our employees that they can do it too? Now, COVID's doing a lot of that job for me. So now it's more like, okay, now that you're inspired that you need to do it, now let's figure out what it is we need to do and how do we get up to speed and what are best practices, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, I geek out on this stuff and uh, I just find it interesting, fascinating, and fun. Yes, yes. And by the way, you do have the responsibility. If you if you realize that you're you have the capabilities and that you're in a situation to do something and improve and push push humanity forward uh, with with the gifts that you have, then you do have the responsibility. I like the the way you talk. It makes me uh, feel like you have a, a strong understanding of like individual ownership and uh, personal development. Absolutely. And and then when I can work with college sophomores and help them sort of chart um the direction of their lives and can have an impact on that i mean what a great rewarding role that I, i'm in and I, I i love it i'll i'll share with you a little bit about stuff that i experience that maybe most people won't talk about <laughs> okay <laughs> so because I, I just like to to be as as open as as possible so i'm very into the leadership stuff because the podcast mm -hmm. and just my entire life i i consume it all and then Obviously, humans have like normal rhythms of up and down. And what I started to notice is like I would lack patience or ability to deploy the skills that I knew or mm -hmm. was aware of or that I learned when I wasn't taking care of myself or had the correct energy to do so. Uh, and then that was the pattern I realized. Realized, you know, why am I doing this or why am I behaving this way? Um, like in a non-optimal, like not in line with my self-image. And then I realized, well you know, maybe I'm not eating enough or maybe I'm not sleeping enough or whatever it is. And so then I'll take a step back, take care of myself, get myself back to recharged, and then um, I'll be in a better position. Do you ever notice yourself going through those cycles? How, how do you handle that? Oh, yeah. So, you know, I, I told you I was a Methodist minister in a previous life. Um, and one of the first lessons we learned, you know, I, I was actually thinking about this the other day for some unknown re for reason I don't want to go into. Um, but one of the first lessons we learned is the way you keep yourself out of trouble as a minister is to take care of yourself first, because it can just suck you down. And if you're not feeling good about yourself, whether it's self-esteem, whether it's sleeping, whether it's exercise, you know, you are going to be susceptible to making bad decisions. Um, and, and Lord knows I've had colleagues, you know, make bad decisions um, in a trusted role. And you just, you, can't let yourself you have to you have to take care of yourself so that doesn't happen and that's the the best way to do that and i think it does apply i'm a i get eight hours of sleep most nights uh most people think i'm crazy i think they're crazy you know i've got too much to do not to get eight hours of sleep uh, a night because i just can't i don't have that mental sharpness and focus i have my my purchase of the year was our peloton bike you know in January. Um, so before all this COVID stuff got locked down, um, I, I bit the bullet and I really did it for my family, not expecting that I would be a, a major user of it. And I must, when, when I'm at home, I'm probably on it five to six days a week. Um, and it's made a huge difference in my health and my weight and my, you know, how I feel and et cetera, et cetera. So I absolutely agree with that sort of a holistic, well-rounded sort of lifestyle. Yeah, fitness has had the largest impact on me. I started tracking things. I just was mm -hmm. in, once I hit thirty, I was like, "All right, 
I don't have time to waste anymore. <laughs> Let's get real yeah, about life. Just wait. It gets, it goes downhill from there, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> so I go, uh, I started tracking stuff and I started improving my sleep intentionally, you know, buying like sound machine and eye mask, and like yep. trying to figure out how to improve my sleep and then tracking like, okay, I implement this behavior or, or this routine and like how much benefit does it bring me? And if it brings me enough benefit, I keep it. If it doesn't, I let it go. Right. And so I found that uh, going to bed at the same time was the biggest indicator for me. And I had read that hmm. through different sleep uh, content I had consumed. You can vary in your wake up because your workouts might be more intense. They said, but uh, going to bed at the exact same time is the most oh. important thing. And so maybe I will have to to give that a shot. Um, oh, it's hard. I promise you. Yeah. It's hard. Yeah, yeah, it is. Well, I think doing anything consistently over a long period of time is difficult. Sure. It's a lot easier now when we're all locked. <laughs> Where to go? <laughs> it is, but my uh, my three-year-old started staying up late. <laughs> oh, boy. See, my kids have always been good sleepers. You know, this summer has been the first time, I think, that they, like, regularly stayed up past 9 o'clock. I mean, that, that may be a little bit of an exaggeration, but they definitely have always been early to bed, early to rise, which is great. I love it. How old are your kids? About their their birthdays are coming up next week. Uh, they're born two years and two days apart, and one is turning thirteen and one is turning sixteen. Wait, yes, no, thirteen and fifteen. I get mine wrong all the time, especially when you're counting the months because they're you know. Well, especially when it's like <laughs> it's transitioning, and I've sort of in my head they're already thirteen and fifteen. And so then when I take, it's like, oh, there's a birthday coming up. So they're going to bump that up. But no, I'd already like pre-bumped it up in my head. What type of tech or what type of uh, career paths, problems are they interested in solving? Um, my daughter is very into theater, uh, musical theater. Um, and actually, it's quite a good musician. We'll see if that, I've tried to convince her that she's going to get to do better music if she has a day job and does music on the side. And I've certainly known a number of professional musicians who've done that, who've been, you know, X day job and then gives them the freedom to take only the best sort of musical gigs or freedom to do that uh, for free or, you know, or, or not charge because you get to perform in a great opportunity. My son, I have brainwashed into his response is, I don't know the job I'm going to have hasn't been invented yet. Um, and so I've just, you know, yeah, I've, I've tried to convince him that when I, for, this is a, a lesson of the book, and this is something I believe firmly that particularly in a time of change, uh, lifelong learning is the right approach. And, you know, many people are going to have multiple careers. And when I counsel my students, um, I, I really love Boston college. I love its attitude towards formation of the whole student. Um, I think there's a reason I've been there for 15 years. But one of the times when I talk to students where I think BC gets the whole Jesuit Catholic thing gets it wrong is they sort of insist on this sort of vocational calling that, you know, you just got to find the right path for you in the, the right way. And I try to undo some of that because I don't know if there ever is like one right path. You know, you're, you're, there are a lot of different junctures in, in your career journey and what you want to do. You don't want to be aimless and say, you know, I, I don't know what I want to do uh, ever. But I think it's also important to keep your open mind to when the right opportunities come up, that you can really sort of take advantage of it and jump on those opportunities. I was sort of inspired by a church member of mine when I was in the large church in Atlanta. 
um, who was the CEO of an exercise company. And he said to me when I was 30 was just be sure you're doing what you want to do when you're 40, because nobody will take you seriously before then anyway. Um, and I don't think, I'm not <laughs> sure that's like the right age, but the point is it sort of gives you a little bit of freedom to sort of figure things out over time. And in fact, I, I got tenure at BC the year I turned 40 and I wrote him a note and I said, you know, I'm doing what I want to do at 40. So, you know, victory. No, huge victory. And yeah, I think you're, I think you're right too, because there's so much flexibility and like the maturity of humans, like biologically mm -hmm. that we really, it's like, I'm just trying to, I'm trying to articulate thoughts that I haven't articulated before, but it, it's like, we have different standards for different age groups of having your mm -hmm. like life together and definitely sure. around 40, whatever you've created a reputation in is when you have to get serious. Cause you only have, you know, 15, 20 years of solid income earning potential according to right. traditional uh yes metrics uh, and you have to they're also your highest earning years technically yeah so you just really have if you already have a, a a foundation to build upon then you're in a much better position absolutely and it's you know it i also think we need to think about careers in terms of skill sets and you can pivot those skill sets to different settings um, and you want to develop those skill sets that you know, allow you to sort of the greatest flexibility because who knows what, you know, we don't know what the next 18 months are going to bring, let alone the next 15 to 20 years. I mean, if you look 15 to 20 years ago, the iPhone didn't exist. Uh, Airbnb didn't exist. Uber didn't exist. Uh, data and analytics was just sort of at the beginning stages. And so, think, I mean, the world has ran, there was no such thing, or just scratching the surface of cloud computing. You know, the world has radically changed in the last 15 years. And I think the next 15 are going to be even more radical, you know, whether it's climate, whether it's COVID, whether it's tech. And the only way to, to really be successful is be able to be adaptable uh, and to be able to learn. And I do think we're in a, what I would call the golden age of, of education uh, because, there, you know, my son in the lockdown has caught himself um, Python. Um, he's in seventh grade just because he's like, well, I'm bored, so I might as well do something with it. Um, I expected him to be just playing Xbox all day, every day. And once we said that wasn't an option, he actually turned out, you know, pretty productive um, and doing some interesting stuff. So, you know, all these opportunities, you know, happen and you, our job to just sort of identify them and, and take advantage of them when they drop in our lap and, and understand and be able to analyze them to know what the good opportunities are and what ones you should pass on. I have been noticing a trend in the engineering field, like with newer engineers mm -hmm. and like to your point. So one of the things that I've been seeing happen and I'm pretty excited about it is people are detaching. I guess the analogy would be like before, if you have a, if you have a toolbox, the person thinks that the screwdriver, right. And they're like, mm -hmm. I am the screwdriver. And now they think that they're the person using the toolbox. And because people would be infatuated with a specific technology, and they'd be like, right. I am a Java programmer, Java, like until like, this ABC. And then it realized, like, if you can abstract that out and show them the reason why business exists, because it brings value to an economy. And so money exchanges for that value. And so the job is efficiency to improve and, you know, broaden how much value you're bringing. And then these tools are just a means to get there. And I think, one one person I had on the guest, can't remember who it was. They said it beautifully. They're, they said something, and Jake might chime in here with a with a message if he can remember it. But it was something along the lines of, um, like, I don't 
play with tools. I build houses or something like that. But mm-hmm. the the sentiment, and I butchered it, so that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the sentiment was that that they're interested in the house. You know, they're not yeah. interested in like the specific tool because that's the byproduct. That's what you deliver to the marketplace. And I've noticed that people are becoming more comfortable with this mindset transition of let's all get together and say, what's the value we're going to bring first? How are we going to, and then what tool sets can we leverage yep. in order to get there? And then we cover that in the book too, because if, that comes, if a company or a manager just says, okay, we need to be an AI or we need a cloud strategy, and they can't answer why and what the business value is there, then you know you push back because if you're just doing it because everybody else is doing it, you don't understand you know, what that tool is going to be, what you're going to be using it for. Um, now you don't always understand in advance, but unless you sort of have a sense of what problem you're trying to solve with it, it's just going to be a, a shiny new toy that doesn't really help you build a house or a, a digital organization. Do you know anyone, um, because lately I've been thinking a lot about approaching new markets and products Mm -hmm. and strategies around that. Do you have anyone in your life that is like the expert you look to when analyzing? Like if you, if I was asking you, hey, we're going to enter a new market as a business and we're going to analyze, you know, three potential new product lines or three potential markets to, to attack. uh, Do you have anyone that is really skilled in talking about that? It's a good question, um, you know, because I'm not, you know, so I study it, I don't do it. <laughs> and so, you know, it's, I'm more, my group is more, okay, I've got this new idea. Tell me why it sucks so I can make it better. Um, so that, those are the people that I tend to have in my life because, you know, I'm not thinking about markets as I'm much as I'm thinking about concepts, ideas, understandings, hypotheses. Uh, research ideas, insights. Um, so of a slightly different nature, yeah, I've got a, a, you know, a set of colleagues that, and, and I always approach them by, tell me why you don't like this, because everybody in their sort of desire for, so, for social desirability and to please people will always hit the highlights and the good parts about it. And you don't need that. You need people to poke holes in your idea um, and, it, and if you don't ask them specifically, they won't do it. You know, I was talking to a, a, a speaker I admire uh, quite a bit. I was happy to be on a panel with her and we first time I'd ever met her. Uh, and I asked to have a call with her afterwards just for some, some guidance and advice. And I, you know, I asked her, it was like, okay, here's, here's the insight and advice. And then I, I said, okay, you've seen me speak what do I need to improve on? Uh, and she had two or three really good answers that were legitimate. And it's nice to hear those things because your friends rarely tell you what you suck at um, and and the directions you shouldn't go. And so finding that group of people, whether it's new markets or whether it's sort of how to battle test your ideas, I think you do need those people. Absolutely. Because people will, they don't want to hurt you. Like they, a lot of people don't, they want to be liked and they want to avoid conflict and they'll just, you know, keep quiet. If the, the phrase, if we're talking about cliches from earlier, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. Remember that from being, yeah. And so, uh, yeah, it's, it's to get good feedback. That's why like in my life, I always have like the certain people who I know will be like just brutally honest because that's just who they are. And so Mm -hmm. when I have things, I'm like, okay, all of these people will cheerlead me no matter what I'm doing. They're gonna be like, it's great, awesome. 
uh, but these people will will be critical of it. And and then I kind of, you know, balance everything out. But to your point about like product development, one of the things that I found with this, this guy, uh, Joe Kinsella, that I thought was pretty interesting, he built mm-hmm. this large company and sold it to VMware. And he was talking about testing new markets. And he had said something along the lines of that he had a couple ideas and he ran like advertising for them through like mm-hmm. social media networks. And then he identified like which idea got the best uh, traction. Yeah, the best traction. And then he pursued that and he ended up building a very large company. Have you ever heard of that before? I have not. I think that's a excellent idea other than you risk pissing people off who want your product and you can't deliver <laughs> it. But uh, um, as a sort of market testing the idea before you build the company, um, you know, and that's one thing we see with entrepreneurs. Um, is they're figuring out their business as they go. You know, we visit them. What's interesting is by coming back year after year to the same place, like San Francisco or New York, we end up visiting with the same groups of people um, over and over again. And we see some people as they move careers to a new company. One of my favorite visits used to be the CEO at One King's Lane, that's a furniture company, and now he's the CEO at Fanatics, um, the sportswear company. It's interesting to see that transition. And then it's interesting to see companies grow or not. Um, so two years ago, we visited two you know, on-demand work companies, so like labor markets um, for different types of em- employees. And if you had told, if I told you, if I walked out of those offices, I would have bet one company was going to thrive and the other company was going to die. And when we came back two years later, it was exactly the opposite. Um, and so it's oftentimes it's, you know, it's hard to know in advance until you just are trying it. And many of these companies don't know it until they've tried a couple of different things and they hit on that, that magic thing and they don't know it entirely in advance. I don't think you can be like totally not have a vision for where you want to go. But a great example is a, a BC company called WePay. Oh, I know. Uh, and they yeah. thought. Yeah. So there, um, he actually, he was, Bill was, and Rich were never my students, but they were at BC when I, my first year as a professor and we visited with them and really sharp guys. And they pivoted a number of different times until they found that right sort of niche. I think they, they thought they were going to be Venmo. Um, and they ended up being sort of the back end processing for, I think it was um, Kickstarter was the first client that they developed the back end for it. Now to run the back end payments for a number of different websites. And of course, required by JP Morgan Chase for $400 million estimated. Um, so that's a good success. I think they're the, the most valuable company to ever come out of Y Combinator, you know, as far as an acquisition goes, the most valuable acquisition. Yeah, I, I interviewed one of the co-founders right after the acquisition, right after JP Morgan. Oh, really? Yeah, Rich. Yeah. Rich. I love Rich. He's such a great guy. Yes. I, I, I'm i a big fan of when I get to talk to the executive leaders at companies, understanding oh, yeah. how they think and how they make decisions through conversations gives you direct insight to the business. Oh, yeah. And then it would be interesting if you could talk to um, Bill because they're very different in terms of mindset, both are important. You know, they, they both recognize what each other brings to the table, but they're just entirely different. Yeah, you know, it's it's funny. I've I've been doing a lot of podcasts, and part of me is like, man, I would really love. I should start doing that, dude. It'd you should, hundred percent. Yes. But the problem is, so in some senses, I do it. I'm just not allowed to share it because 
Uh, so when I interview people, I get these fascinating insights, but then I have to promise them that I won't, yeah, I won't share anything until like they vetted it with everybody. Da 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 da. So I do have the conversations. The outlet's just a little bit different, and so I'm not sure I'm that interesting to do this week after week after week. Um, <laughs> I can talk about my stuff uh, readily, but you know, prompting people to talk about their stuff, I'm just not sure I'm as good at it. But maybe I'll try it sometime. Well, I'm trying to keep it fresh. I mean, we've done upwards of 400 episodes. And uh, wow. yeah, and it started well, We've been sitting here talking for 45 minutes and it doesn't seem like, you know, it certainly hasn't dragged. No. It's just a conversation, but yeah. you're, you're good at it. So thank you. I, I enjoy it. Well, by the way, I'll tell you how uh, you came about. So I was looking at the past couple of years of the podcast and the growth and everything. Mm -hmm. And I was excited but I felt like the conversations were you know, very similar because I was so interested in finding out everyone's like leadership style and techniques. And then sure. it started to get a little repetitive. So I said, okay, well, how do I keep this interesting? Because I really enjoy talking to these people. And so I came up with a couple things. The first thing was a wish list. So I gave my team, we've got about seven people here. Um, I gave yeah. my team uh, like a wish list, like here are these people that I want to talk to. And so you were one of my uh, entries on the wish list because I, Oh, nice. Yeah. And I'm so, honored. <laughs> I'm honored. I'm so glad you came on. I'm just thrilled when people have actually bought and read the book. <laughs> <laughs> so the wish list was something that uh, to keep it interesting. And then I realized that um, I had all these great conversations, but I don't ever want it to be like I just talked to a person and I never talked to him again. So then we started you know, looking at all these past conversations that I've had and uh, developing a an upcoming schedule to have guests like come repeat on. Cause I want to like reconnect with them and see how the past year has been going. And cause these, this is, um, you know, I got into this, like, I didn't think it would turn into this, uh, what yeah. today, but I definitely knew that it would be an adventure and it would help propel me forward. But yeah, I kind of lost my train of thought there, but, uh, yeah. Absolutely. Um, well invite me back in a year cause yes. I'll have another book to talk about. Um, uh, and we'll have made, well, it's hard to write about an, like a crisis that you're living through. So it's it's very much on the fly of what we're, we're coming up with, but it's been fascinating. Uh, and I'm sure I'll have some interesting stuff to talk about next year about this time. Yeah, earlier you had mentioned something about you did a, there was a survey done and there were mm -hmm. like 51% of people said that, yep. you know, they needed better leadership. Better like, leaders, yep. Yeah, better leaders. Uh, well, you, uh, no, the, the least category was 50%. So over half of even the best companies said we need new leaders. It goes up to 80 or 90% okay. um, for less advanced companies. But yes. So like, I want to unpack that a little bit. Okay. It, and I want to try to get to the root of it. Is the root of it, one one idea that would get the conversation started, because it's probably wrong. Yep. It'd be fun to shoot down, <laughs> is that they they lack like an individual ownership or that they they expect too much of leadership um another idea would be the leadership is just unengaged uninterested i'm just trying to really understand i know there's going to be specific situations for different companies yep. but any sort of high level trends that you see you know i think there's some of that um i think there's some of the you know, a lot of the leaders who've gotten to senior positions have five years left in their career and they are not interested in engaging in digital transformation. You know, they just want to ride out the clock. They want to do their the business the way they've always done it. And they don't understand the stuff too. You know, they don't understand how technology is changing their industry. 
Um, so that is certain. We actually asked that question, and that was something that came up. You know, why are your leaders bad? And it was like they just don't care. They are running out the clock. I prefer like a more optimistic spin, um, which is this: it's a really hard problem. I mean, it is a really hard problem to innovate in your company while still keeping the lights on. And how do you do that? And and lots of companies try. And then when something like COVID hits, you turn and you only focus on keeping the lights on. Our argument in this new book is now is the time to innovate because there'd never be a greater opportunity to experiment because you have to. Um, and so what? don't tread water and wait for things to come back the way things used to be. Innovate your way through this. And so I, I really just think it's so one of the cool things that innovations of our own research is we asked each year four open-ended open text questions. Um, like we asked, how is digital business different than traditional business? And people just wrote in the answer. And we've had about two thirds of our respondents were outside of the US, about one third was inside. So we got global responses, lots of different languages. And I had my TAs go through and code all 3,300, 3,500 responses. And the biggest difference on how digital business was different was simply the pace of change. Um, and and ha the need to keep learning is just hard. And so there's this, I had this working hypothesis that digital digitally advanced companies would have better leaders and that hypothesis was short sort of shot down but digitally advanced companies are helping their leaders get the skills they need to lead into this digital future and that's what makes a difference and carol dweck has the book mindset um the psychology yeah. of success or something like that and you know we really rely on this growth mindset not just at the individual level but also at the organizational level that you can do this um, and it just needs that sh we have one finding in the book which just screams growth mindset we asked respondents if they their company was going to be in a stronger or weaker position going forward as a result of digital trends and then why the people that said we were going to be a, in weaker position it's because the market or competitive forces did it to us it's a very fixed mindset those that said we're going to be stronger said we are going to be able to develop the skills and capabilities necessary to compete. That's the growth mindset. We can do the work to make it happen. Um, and so it's that that mindset shift that's really important. I don't remember what question you asked to get me off on my uh, no. soapbox, but that's one of my soapboxes. I love that soapbox. I'm a huge fan of it because it's almost become like a, like a flag people can wave. Like when I understand that people understand the growth mindset and like live it out, it's a you know way we can connect because it's important and it takes a lot of work and it's not easy. It's like almost, right. <laughs> it's actually very difficult. And so I, I like how you, you know, describe this whole thing, especially with, you know, we started the podcast and we ended up, uh, people start asked, asked for, to license the content from it for like leadership training mm -hmm. programs. So we start built a sales team and started selling into like leadership development. And so we got to oh, see cool. all these different companies. And we got to see, you know, how they respond to a leadership sales process and then what type of customers were the best customers, what, what type of customers we liked, wanted more of, things, things of that nature. And so that gave me insight to how different organizations see the continuing education of their people. And interesting enough, the organizations that were like tech oriented that were used to this behavior of yeah, we have this problem. Let's go grab this solution, evaluate all solutions and implement it. And they weren't concerned with the fact that it was a digital solution 
right? Like mm-hmm. le- digital leadership training. They actually like that because most of their people were distributed and they couldn't get everybody yep. together in person. And then some of the older companies were like, no, 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 we get, we fly everyone in from every corner of the earth. Right. We do our workshops and stuff. And so it was just interesting to see how the different companies were making business decisions. Like it was the same yep. business decision as leadership development, but it was interesting to see how their leadership saw it. And uh, I'm, my data set tends to be biased to, towards forward advanced thinking companies but mm-hmm. I have to remember that today, if I take a step back out of it, I, I think that's like the 20%. I think there are a lot of old companies out there that are old mindset and they, they just are the, the quiet majority that I don't get to interact Absolutely. With. Yeah. And, and when you're talking about old companies, we actually, in our research, suggests that anything older than 10 years is really an old company. Not as bad as the 50-year mark, but that 10-year, and, and I use mobile devices as the the justification there it's if you were born if your company was born in a pre iphone era you're going to go about business differently than company and and people forget that facebook you know really had to pivot hard to the mobile environment and as late recently as 2012 people questioned whether facebook was able going to be able to adapt to a mobile environment and clearly they've proven they're up to that. But that was a leadership decision by Zuckerberg to make some big time changes in terms of how their engineers operated um, to make that happen. So uh, 10 years is the beginning is like legacy light. And then 50 years is legacy heavy, but legacy nonetheless. So do you get to talk to the companies a lot about approaching the new markets? Or is that just like a side thing that you research sometimes? Did they ask you to talk as about that? As far as they're approaching new markets yeah. or? So I'll give you a, some background as like why I'm kind of interested in this. So we started yeah. the leadership company and it started growing. And then the podcast ended up like doing better than the leadership company. Mm-hmm. And then so we focused more of the resource, the sales resources, because we're a small team yeah. under 10 on the podcast and that's growing. And so now we're talking about like, what's our next move? Do we do like a premium and grow the podcast? Do we invest in another sales team and continue to go to the leadership company? And we're trying to evaluate these different options. And it's hard because there's two things that go through my mind. The first thing is like, you know, what could be a hundred million dollar a year business? And so we can go after that. And the second thing that goes through my mind that is kind of on the opposite end of the spectrum is, just focus on like getting revenue up like 25% every quarter and just deal in like the real time and figure out like, what can we do right now to get revenue? What's like one small change we can make. And so I kind of go back, back and forth between these two things. Yeah, I, that's a good question. I'm not sure. I, I certainly don't know the answer. You know, one thing to think about is what would be an exit strategy um, for you as a company. And, you know, a lot, a logical exit strategy would be to get acquired by a large online learning company for your content. Um, and so I would think acquisition might be a doubling down on the podcast might make the acquisition route a little easier, um, because you would have unique content that you could then license, um, or, and they'd pay you to keep creating. And so it really, I think it depends on your goals. Um, if if acquisition and exit is is what you're in for, then that might be a better route. If you know you're having fun doing it, and you just want to keep the the ride going. The other one may be a a better route. Um, certainly, once you 
the competition at the upper levels of of podcastness is is really stiff. You know, I would think it's sort of a really steep. So making progress, you know, is I think is going to be more challenging going forward for you because you're coming against the big dogs. Yeah, we're definitely in that like top tier of podcasts now, and our things that we've been evaluating are we've got we know how to sell podcasts and podcast advertising. And so, yep. do you need to talk to somebody? You can. You need to. No, my son just stuck his head in for some reason, so oh. it's all fine. Xbox bandwidth is down because yes, exactly. streaming Zoom. <laughs> hey, I upgraded. To, I upgraded to gigabit the minute they their first day home from school, so we should be good bandwidth wise. On top of it, um, yep. So we were looking. We were like, okay, we're really good at selling the podcast advertising. What if we just started selling for other podcasts? Like, if we like. Did a licensing deal and split revenue. That'd be a small move, but that you could get to a hundred million dollars. Yeah. If we had a hundred podcasts, they're all making a million dollars a year. There's a way, and it's a small move. The other move was, you know, uh, we can because that provides me an exit strategy. Like as doing the yep. modern podcast, hard exit strategy, because like I'm the host and it's like my thing. Um, but if we had a media company that sold did sales for hundreds of podcasts or yep. YouTube influencers or things like that, that's a sellable entity. Uh, and then over here, we also had the leadership stuff. I got a little discouraged selling the leadership stuff, to be honest with you. Like one of the questions I was asking myself is like, you know, where do you want to spend your time? Like, yep. how how would you spend your day? And I find that like I felt a little bad with doing the leadership training stuff because I felt like there the customers in the market, there was one type of customer had a problem and like leadership training is not going to solve it. You know, they just, right. you need better people. I don't know how else to say that, <laughs> um, but there's that problem. And then there's, uh, you know, the positive people who just want continuous improvement and growth mindset. Yep. The thing is, they're so small of a market. Yep. It's hard to yep. really find those people. Um, so those are kind of the two things that I'm playing around with in my head right now. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, I, can you try both, you know, in small yeah. experiments and see which, you know, I'm a big fan of of experimentation, and it's something that this was also in the book that companies just don't do enough of is run a couple of small things. You know, maybe get a pod, get one podcast that you like, like search the market and find one that you think is under monetizing itself, and approach them and ask if you can do a revenue sharing model if you help upsell them, and see if it works and see how hard it is and and also do the other thing and just um when i when i give career advice to my students and you're sort of the age you could have been my student probably is i always my philosophy is always have three potential career paths going at any one time and so i keeping i'm keeping three alive right now which is you know, do I move to a larger research university and sort of set up my own research lab with funding and stuff like that? Do I pursue administration um, and, you know, be a dean somewhere? Or do I, you know, try the consulting route and ramp, you know, that up to a sort of a sizable side business? And right now I have activities that are going on that are doing, that enable all three of those. And when I, I, I'm going along until I get an offer, I can't refuse. Uh, and then I'll take that path and come up with three new uh, outlets and opportunities. So, that, yeah, I know you have a limited amount of time, but try some small experiments. Because who knows? You know, you could be a, a uh, 
a WePay where you don't know what the sort of the ultimate business is until you do some experimentation and find that product market fit out there. I mean, I think all, all of your strategies that you've listed are viable. Which one is right? I don't know if anybody can tell you. And so it's how do you run those small experiments? How do you A-B test it? to see which one's going to catch on in the marketplace. And then when you run the experiment, and if it doesn't work, make sure you identify why it doesn't work. And if it does work, make sure you identify why it works. Uh, because learning is going to be the most important part. I wish people talked more about like the scientific method in business. Because like one of when I I I did the public speaking last year as well, had a couple talks yep. and I did like fifth 52 or 55 of them. Holy smokes. That's yeah, I know. More than just <laughs> I know. <laughs> so, but this year they were like, everything got canceled. Um, of course. So I, so I did that, but one of the most common requested talks was about fear, uh, fear inside yeah. of the executives of like trying new things. And so I came up with this, this concept of, you know, act like a scientist, you know, they, they don't mm -hmm. beat themselves up if the experiment doesn't work. They just note it right. and, and keep trying. And they try 10 things. They take the best, three that worked, yep. make variations and repeat. And that's a that's one of those pieces of information that I constantly remind myself about because it's so easy to forget it and it's so good. It is. And certainly as, as companies are getting more and better data, that opportunity to run experiments goes up because when you're tracking all the data, when you make a change, so we interviewed one company called Humanize and that's what they do um, is people analytics. And this is an old example. I've talked to them again recently for the new book. But in the old book, it was they found that I forget what company it was. They're working with a, like a call center or a tech company. And they found that if they change the size of the tables in the lunchroom, job satisfaction went way up because you were sitting with more people, you were eating with more people, you were having more conversations, um, and that engagement really clicked up. But if you didn't have the data, you wouldn't know that. Uh, and so it gives them the opportunity to run that ex those experiments um, and then find out if it works. And that's really the, the key. But uh, I'm a huge fan of experimentation. Nice. I'm a scientist, so I should be. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious, what actually makes a scientist? Like, where, at, What type of designation makes a scientist? Well, I would consider myself a social scientist. Um, so, you know, and I do have a PhD in it, so at least have the credential. So do you need a PhD to be a scientist? Probably not. You know, it's, I think it's, you know, just the designation of people who I, I think you get, who, who's practicing the scientific method of forming hypotheses and testing them. In I like whatever that. Whatever form or fashion it takes the place. I like that. I just always ask when, when things pop into my head, I was like, man, maybe there's like this special scientist thing that <laughs> some, some, <laughs> it's a club and it's you know, a club. I have my membership card. Yeah. <laughs> you, gotta, you, have, you have to have your, your pay your dues and all that sort of stuff. Cause I, I call myself a life scientist. And the reason is, sure. is because I actually track my data and I have journals mm -hmm. and I try things and I pull things in and out of my life that bring me value. And I'm like, if, if that's, like if I don't have the special designation, that's fine because I am operating the scientific method regardless of, of if I've taken some other test to show the world that. You know? And so you do this with your life. Do you do it with your company as well? So yeah, we, I, I definitely did at like, I do it in different ways. So I did it with topics on the show, uh, testing mm -hmm. out which topics Excellent. people wanted to hear about, uh, using the mailing list to do that too. 
and that I got from like higher level topics to more granular topics. Uh, I do I did that in our early stage of of revenue uh, mm-hmm. with pricing, trying out different pricing. Yep. That was very important. So we scienced the pricing. Uh, we scienced how to get new subscribers through advertising. Uh, you know which methods work the best mm-hmm. of of all. So we first started on a method level, and then we went down from the method like into the individuals. And so we just tracked the stuff, no special tools or anything, just spreadsheets. And then we're we're working on it right now, where uh, you know we've brought in some new members into the team. So we're kind of, you go through that like uh, forming process sure. of bringing new members in. And so now our the thing we've been talking about for like the past week is, you know, what do we want to do and and what kicked all of this off was I was reading some notes from myself from two or three years ago. And Mm -hmm. I said, you know, if if I got to spend my days talking to like some of the greatest people in technology in the world and and sharing ideas and and learning from them directly, uh, that would be like the most dream thing. I think it'll take me probably like an entire lifetime to achieve to get there. And then looking back, I'm like, I got there within three years. So then I had this odd issue to approach of, I took some, I had it, I completed something I thought would take a lifetime. And so now I have to find something new. What's next? Yeah. And I don't want to <laughs> pick something too small. I don't want to pick something too big. So I was like, well, I read some books, some life stories of billionaires just out of interest. And the reoccurring trend I found through those texts were that they always got their, their goal or their objective or like right at, right at it near it. And their, their regret if anything, was not picking a bigger one. And so I said, well, let's uh, try for a $100 million company. And the reason being, because I I think it would be cool to bring that much value to the marketplace. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's a good goal. I mean, good luck. And I can say I knew you win. (laughs) There are so many of them, though. There are so many companies that make over $100 million a year. Yep. And that's really the big, so my colleague who runs this tech track program with me is a venture capitalist. Um, and so he, he really, hundred million is what he considers the hard part. You know, that, that is a, well, some, that benchmark is something that sets companies apart. That's a really, and once you get to that, then you get momentum going. In fact, we were visiting um, Foursquare, the tech company in New York, and I, you know, I studied them way back in the day um, when they were the social media location company. And I was like, wow, they're still around. I didn't think, I thought it was going to be this little dinky, you know, social media has been. Um, well, here they pivoted their business model to making better location data. And they've licensed that technology out and they're a $100 million company now. Um, and it's just crazy to think a company that I had written off, you know, had just they just done something different and I didn't notice it. Um, and it was really, we got to talk to the founder and he was a really great guy. Yeah, I was reading uh, a poll about why startups fail and they had all these mm-hmm. options and you know, lack of funding, this, that yep. over competitive market. And, and the only thing I could take away from that was they were missing the most important option and that was that they gave up. Yeah, more, more my colleague when he's talking about why startups fail, his answer is because they run out of money. I mean, that's, they just, they, they don't give up. They just don't have any more to sort of, they don't have any more money to keep trying and nobody's willing to give it to them. So that's really the the problem. Yeah. But I'd counter that with, they still gave up. Yeah. (laughs) 
I would, we'll I, you could go on food stamps, you could live in a box and you could keep trying to get it going because Maybe. like that, that's the thing that like, that pushed me through the first three years of this business to get it to where it is today it was like, there are oh, yeah. so many times that I was like, oh crap, we don't have money. <laughs> We're, yeah. it's, it's not going to work. And I was just like, I'm just, I refused to let myself say that like, I, it'll give up. And I'm just like, I'm just, I can't, I cannot do it. Right. I won't do it. And then, I mean, now we're at the point where after almost three years, we are right on the edge of cash flow positive. And now in the next, you know, month or two, we'll be definitely cash flow positive. And uh, it's exciting to be in a position where you're not drowning anymore. And yep. now it's like, where do we want to <laughs> swim to? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Wow. Now what's next? What do we do now? Yeah. But thank you for, for your insight. You remind me that we just need to apply, you know, you brought this perspective to me today. So I'm very grateful for that to like step back and just apply the scientific method because the past week I've kind of been like, oh, we could do all these options, you know, Yep. but just take a step back, get the spreadsheet out, yep. list the actions and start measuring and testing and repeating. And then We'll be in a better position. And when you hit on something, yep. And then once you you get some data you like, you try another one, and you just ramp it up. And uh, or you, you learn what doesn't work. You know the whole Edison thing. Yeah, haven't failed. I just heard. I've just learned a thousand things that don't work. Yes. Um, and so that's. I, I think that's that's a good life lesson. Well, Jerry, you're amazing, my friend. I am so glad I had you on that wish list. Oh, thank you. I've again, I, I am literally honored to be on the list. So thank you for reaching out. And it's been a really fascinating uh, conversation. And I hope you'll have me back. Yes. And so the book, the title of the book, people can buy it on Amazon. It is the technology fallacy, how people are the real key to digital transformation. And did you do an audible version of this? I, d I asked to do to read the audible. There is an audible version narrated by a guy named Jack Lagala, I think. And he does a great job with it. I, I really wanted to narrate my own audiobook, but they wouldn't let me. Uh, everyone says that. Yeah. I've got a vo I've got a voice for it, man. I'm a Dude, you're a public it's speaker. It's what you do. You speak but for a living. The, the, the one funny thing about, and but he probably did a better job than I ever could have. I have to confess. I mean, it was fun. I disagree. Uh, well, thank you. I appreciate that. What's it's your hilarious words. to me it, well, not always, and this is what's hilarious to me, is we have a lot of quotes from our executives that we've interviewed. And of course, I've spoken to all of them personally. And the audiobook reader will put on a different accent when he's <laughs> referring to different people. And I'm like, no, that guy's from Australia. He doesn't sound anything like that. Um, and so it's funny. I have these jarring moments of so-and-so says, and it's a voice that's so totally not them. But of course, I am the only one who would have that critique, but it's uh, still funny to listen to. Well, maybe self-publish your next book. <laughs> yeah, well, MIT Press comes with a little bit of uh, cachet to it. Oh, so. that's nice, though. Yeah, I mean, so it's, and, and my boss at BC likes me publishing through academic uh, publishers. So maybe I'll get to the point someday, but but uh, my day I still get credit my day job for publishing in academic, even books and academic publishers. So I'll keep that up for a while. And let's give a shout out for your public speaking career. What type of talks are you giving right now if people are interested in having you come talk to their teams? Yeah, right now what I'm really working on is some variation. So, you know, if 
the technology, I'm, I'm trying to stay within the screen. If the technology <laughs> fallacy is this big, which it is, I mean, it's five years worth of research, now adding the COVID stuff on top of it, I try to carve out, I'm trying to not disappear in my, like, what is the most relevant that part that for companies? And I, and I speak with companies and say, okay, what do you need? Do you need an overview of this? Do you need a focus here? Let's work on your problem. And it's a lot of it's just about getting the companies and the teams on the same page with the same language, with the same mental models, so they can start communicating uh, with one another and figuring out how to solve their shared problems. So I do anything from 30 minutes to three days with companies. Yeah, three days is a little harder in a pure online setting now, but I used to go to companies and do workshops and such like that. So, but the virtual opens up new opportunities here. You know, it's I'm, I'm able to, to really customize, you know, basically my fee used to be, you have to pay me to get on a plane. Um, and there's a fixed fee to get me on a plane for an overnight. Now I can really tailor it to whatever company's needs are to talk to boards, to talk to groups, whether it be HR or marketing or tech, um, to talk to certain smaller teams. So anybody that's sort of really wrestling with what are our next steps digitally, that's my target audience. And one thing, having worked with consultants now for seven years, you know, because they're the sponsors and the co-authors on the book, all consultants do is take knowledge they learned in talking to customer A and sell that knowledge to customer B, and then take the knowledge they learned from customer B and sell it to customer C. And that's what I've done in these interviews. Uh, and I just charge a lot less than the consultants do. <laughs> so if they want to learn more about that, do you have a personal website or how do they get in touch yep. with you? www.profkane, P-R-O-F-K-A-N-E.com. Um, or just Google Gerald Kane, uh, and I'm usually the first um, Google uh, site to come up, or Gerald C. Kane. And then uh, when you're a digital professor, you tend to have a pretty good online footprint. Yes. Well, man, thank you so much, Jerry. I really appreciate it. I'm going to have you back on next year when you've got the Joel, book. thanks. This was a great conversation. I appreciate it. I tell you, I've done a lot of these episodes yeah. and you're definitely a natural at this. What? So thank you so much. <laughs> and thank you for the advice, by the way. That's like, it was very, it's very useful. Like that's good conversations with smart people really help push us in the right direction. So that's useful business knowledge. I'm going to get off this call and get on a, on a call with the, with the team and talk with them about it. And we're going to start sciencing uh, this business model out. Sounds good. Thank you so good much, luck. buddy. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.